Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, every single week on Felony Friday, I focus on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. This is only one of three shows that we have here on Lions on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Every Monday, we start the week with a show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest running program, our flagship program. Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. He hosts roundtable discussions with other Lions of Liberty. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture comedy, and liberty. You can get all three of these shows downloaded directly to your phone or your listening device if you don't listen with the phone, which I don't know who wouldn't, but comes right to your phone. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcast, you can get the Lines of Liberty podcast, all three episodes, and you can get our newest show. We have a new show coming out called Candidates of Liberty. Uh, The release date is not 100% set, so be sure to subscribe to get Candidates of Liberty, where we will be interviewing libertarian candidates running for office. Myself, Mark Clare, Brian McWilliams, we're splitting up the duties. It's a rotating hosts format, so check that out. I will introduce my guest in just one minute. I just want to let you guys know, this is the 135th episode of Felony Friday. That means... The show notes page can be found at lionsofliberty.com slash FF135. Let's get rolling with today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Michael Meharry. Michael serves as the National Communications Director for the Tenth Amendment Center. Michael is also the author of three books, uh, first one being Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty. Second, Smashing Myths, Understanding Madison's Notes on Nullification. And Michael joined up with 10th Amendment Center Executive Director Michael Bolden, who was just on Brian McWilliams' podcast, Electric Electric Liberty Land. And that one is called Nullification Objections, Dismantling the Opposition. Uh, Michael has a unique uh, part to his backstory here that I want to talk about with him, where he earned his degree... Um, in mass communications and media studies from the University of South Florida. And while he was there, he actually played ice hockey at the age of 40 and earned the American Collegiate Hockey Association Academic 
All-American Honors. So very interesting uh, part of Michael's life that we'll talk about. And he's also a working journalist. Michael has written and reported uh, for several newspapers. He's won a pair of 2009 Kentucky Press Association Awards. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Michael, welcome to Felony Friday. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. You know, let's let's kind of do something unique here. And before we get into talking about your journey to liberty or the reason why I'm having you on this show, really a uh, vic- a victory that you had fighting a, uh, the local government there in, in Lexington. Before we talk about that stuff, let's talk about ice hockey a little bit. So, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> so you played ice hockey in college while you were 40 years old. How did that all come about? What's the what's the backstory? Yeah, so true story. Actually, so to say I played hockey, I sat on the bench a lot when I was 40, but I, I was on the team, so I practiced a lot. But yeah, I went back to school in uh, 2006 uh, after about a 10-year career. I use the uh, air quotes around career as a musician and, uh, and then working in the airline industry for a while. I went back to school in 2006 to pursue a journalism degree. And I've been playing hockey for years. And one of the guys on the team I was playing with in an in a adult rec league, and he was like, hey, Mike, you should play, play for USF. And I'm like, I'm 39 years old. I can't play <laughs> hockey at college level. And he talked me into doing it. And honestly, it was one of the one of the best experiences of my life. I've got, I made some lifelong friends. Uh, I certainly got myself back into shape, and uh, you know, got to play a little bit. But mostly was just being able to be around the team and and uh, practice with those guys was was pretty phenomenal. Yeah. So uh, being a backup goalie, though, I mean, I'm sure the practices you were probably you probably worked harder than anybody else during practice because you're taking taking all the shots and oh yeah it was it was tough and and the first year especially the second year I knew more what I was getting into and I was in a lot better shape going into it the first year after the the tryouts the uh the first season I literally went to my apartment sat on the floor ate Chinese food and could barely get up when I finished my dinner I mean it was it was pretty brutal but but like I said I wouldn't trade that experience for anything in the world it was it was a a lot of fun. And like I said, I've got some, some friends now that, you know, from the, even with the age difference, just real close friends. In fact, one of the guys that I played with, he was one of our captains. He's actually a, he's actually a libertarian now. So I kind of got to watch his evolution from being kind of a neocon in college to, to full fledged Liberty dude. So that was kind of cool. That's cool. So you were, you were already a libertarian at that point then? I wasn't actually. Um, I didn't. I don't know what I would have described myself as at that point. I was. Uh, I was probably a neocon with some libertarian leanings, which is kind of embarrassing. I'm a little bit ashamed. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> exactly that's exactly what I was. I was. Uh, so what, what time frame are we? You're talking 2006. Yeah, I was at that point in time. I was probably cheering the uh, Iraq War. And, oh yeah, me too. And Big talking time. about how you know we're going to spread democracy to the Middle East and, and all that stuff. So, yeah, so what absolutely. what what brought you out of that? What what changed you? So when I got out of school uh, in 2008, I graduated and got involved in my journalism career, and it was kind of one of those things that you know I'd always been politically interested. And I guess involved as far as what you would consider mainstream involvement in politics. Like I got in, got into some congressional campaigns in my younger years and, and that kind of traditional, you know, Republican politics stuff, mostly putting bumper stickers on my car, to be honest. But mm-hmm. I always had an interest in politics. I always felt like it was important. And I kind of got caught up in the whole Tea Party thing, uh, you know, 
Obama was going to be the worst president ever in the history of the world. The world was going to come to an end. So I felt like I should probably get involved and do something. And as fortune would have it, uh, one of the things that I've always been kind of intuitively, uh, always intuitively understood was the idea of decentralization and that the federal government was doing far more than it was ever intended to. And I knew that there was this thing called the Tenth Amendment. And so I started looking into that and, and came across the Tenth Amendment Center. And when I started looking for a place to kind of plug in and use my writing talents, I checked those guys out and I thought, well, you know, they're a little bit crazy, but not too crazy. And I think I could probably work with them. And I love this messaging on, on limiting the federal government. So uh, I filled out a volunteer application and uh, for, for whatever reason, they took on a crazy neocon. I don't think they realized how neocon-y I was at that point. Um, but I started off as a state chapter coordinator in Kentucky and pretty quickly they decided that I should be the national communications director, mainly because I could write and parrot pretty much whatever somebody puts in front of me. So, uh, you know, from there it was, uh, a, a pretty quick evolution in a lot of ways. Of course, when you start reading Tom Woods and, uh, you know, people like that, then it's kind of the, uh, the wormhole you fall down and, you know, next thing you know, you're reading Rothbard mm-hmm. and, uh, and so I, I, the last thing for me was the foreign policy. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I was cheering the Iraq war. I, my, my family has a lot of military background in it. So that was hard for me to let go. And what really changed it for me was Tom Woods. And he did a speech and talked about the fact that the same nincompoops who are running the domestic policy are running the foreign policy as well. So how can you trust these guys to run foreign policy when they've made such a mess out of everything in domestic policy? I was like, duh, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so that really, that was kind of the, the turning point that got me off of that, uh, that, that crazy interventionist foreign policy platform that I was on. Yeah, that I must have seen that same speech, or Thomas probably said it multiple times, but that really resonated with me too. But the weird thing is when I try to I try to use that to convert other people or, you know, open other people's minds to the, to the ideas of liberty. And I'll just get these weird looks when I bring that up with, with uh, neoconservatives or even people who I consider more conservative and libertarian leaning, but they still hold that, not necessarily die hard, this neoconservative foreign policy, but they still support um, intervention. They, they still support, uh, they're not, you know, looking for, to, you know, really some of the people who recently have been against Donald Trump talking to Russia or talking to North Korea, which I think that's some of the best stuff that Donald Trump's doing. Exactly. <laughs> but, but it's weird. You, I'll get a strange look and it's you can just sense the cognitive dissonance that no one's ever said that before. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. But, there's so much cognitive dissonance in politics. And uh, Michael Bolden and I were actually talking about that this morning on 10th or Tuesday. You know, you, we've got all these people that that are so invested in Donald Trump that they can't see the horrible constitutional policies that he is following. And, you know, for me, I, I guess it's part of not having a team. It's easier to look back and be critical and positive. You know, I can say when when the guy does something good, I'll cheer it. And when he does something bad, I'm going to criticize it. And every time I criticize Trump at all, I get all of this hate mail from these Trump supporters. How can you diss our president? And you're disrespectful. You know, it's like, geez, Louise, you know, it's this cult of personality thing. And it, it drives me absolutely crazy. Yeah, I saw an interesting poll, not to go too off topic on Donald Trump, but I, who knows the numbers behind the poll, but it was asking uh, asking people, who do they trust more? And it was Donald Trump, your family, 
or the mainstream media. Have you seen that? Have you seen that? I've not poll? seen that poll. And it was Donald Trump. How much do you trust him? Ninety-one percent said this was a poll of Trump supporters. Ninety-one percent trust Donald Trump. Everything he says. They, or I guess they trust him 91% of the time. I guess that's the scale. I think the family was like around 25% of the time and mainstream media was like 5%. I had a lady the other day tell me that she what, didn't have a problem with uh, the president giving $12 billion to farmers, even though it's unconstitutional, because he didn't mean it. Like he, he wasn't going to really do it. No, he didn't mean it. He wasn't really going to do that. It was all a, you know, it's just, it's this 4D chess thing that we've got going on. So yeah, I, I believe the poll. Yeah. Yeah, And you know what, even if it is um, 4D chess, I I think Donald Trump does. He's he's negotiating, whatever. But what these Republicans fail to see is um, he might be successful in some of those things. Maybe he will get tariffs lifted in Europe and there won't be tariffs in China. We'll have more free trade. Maybe that'll happen. That'll be good. But at the end of the day, he's using these tactics that Republicans, not that they have much principle to stand on right now, but after Trump, they're just going to be flapping in the wind with no direction whatsoever, which would be a great opportunity for libertarians to move in, hopefully. But Well, yeah, absolutely. But to me, it's all about principle. And, you know, our mantra at the 10th Amendment Center is follow the Constitution, every issue, every time, no exceptions, no excuses. And, uh, you know, we could, our, our anarchist friends are all cringing right now when I say that. But, you know, if you're going to, f- if you're going to be involved in the political system in the United States, the Constitution is the highest law of the land. If you're going to do that, we ought to follow it, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, there's a principle involved, and it's a decentralizing principle, which is the beauty of it. But when when people get so caught up in personality that they abandon all principle because their guy is doing something and they think it's going to be pragmatically good, that always backfires you at, at the end. When you give the federal government power to do something that you like, they're going to use that same power at some point against you. So my my opinion is don't give the federal government any more power. It's got way too much to, to begin with. Uh, I agree with you there. And Obviously, don't give the federal government more power, but you were recently uh, made some some headlines and some positive news fighting your local government there in Lexington, Kentucky, right? And take us through. Uh, I, I think I think you've won to this point. There might be challenges coming that I'm unaware of, but take us through what happened here. This had to do with some cameras that were put up by the Lexington, Lexington police. How did you get involved? Okay, so I'll try to give the short version of the now what is, has been uh, uh, over a one-year saga that is going to continue. Uh, about this time last year, it was actually July of uh, 2017, I noticed that they had put up some surveillance cameras in a skateboard park that's right around the corner from, from my neighborhood. And having worked in the realm of surveillance as a policy issue for the 10th Amendment Center, it immediately got my attention because I know when you start seeing stuff, that's the tip of the iceberg. And so being a concerned citizen, it was, you know, it was kind of interesting because I've done all of this stuff over the last seven or eight years uh, involving state policy. And a lot of it is not even in my own state. You know, we're working with legislatures in Alaska and Arkansas and all over the country. And when I saw this go up, I said, you know what? I need to put my money where my mouth is right here in my own neighborhood. I'm seeing these cameras. That is an indicator that there's probably other surveillance programs going on. So I put together a little organization called We See You Watching Lexington, uh, which is just designed to bring oversight and transparency and accountability to surveillance 
here in my hometown. And one of the first things I did was uh, do an open records request to the police department to try to find out what other types of surveillance equipment that is being used here in the city. And what I got back was uh, an admission that they had 29 mobile surveillance cameras. Now, you're probably wondering what in the heck is a mobile surveillance camera. Yeah, that's and a good my question. answer, yeah, my answer to that question is I have no earthly clue because this is a giant secret. And uh, so they wouldn't release any information about these cameras other than their cost. So I have a whole bunch of redacted uh, documents that look a lot on my T-shirt. And um, so I appealed this decision. They said that they had the right to hide these documents to keep them secret based on Homeland Security exceptions and officer safety, uh, some, some exemptions in the open records law. And so I appealed that to the state attorney general, which is the process here in Kentucky. The attorney general reviewed the open records request, came back to this city, said, no, your uh, the exemptions you're claiming don't work. You need to hand over the documents to this guy. So instead of handing the documents over, they slapped me with a lawsuit. And I, everybody's like, they did what? Which I know it's crazy. Oddly enough, it's actually the process in Kentucky. So it's a kind of a jacked up legal process. If you lose at the um, attorney general level, the next step is you can sue the other party in order to overturn the attorney general's uh, opinion. You can't sue the attorney general, of course. You have to sue the other guy. So uh, I got slapped with a lawsuit and uh, over, uh, I think it was in June. Well, we, what, uh, so what were they suing for in the lawsuit? So in essence, they're suing the they're suing me in order to overturn that attorney general opinion. But because I'm the one that initiated the open records request in the first place, they have to sue me. Like what? Know, like, doesn't what, make sense. I know it's uh, but like what sort of dam? Like were there damages associated with it? Or no? You know what it's, I mean? it's, it's just it's just the process for okay. them to overturn. Now, interestingly, and, and this is kind of an aside, but this shows you the mentality of government. And I think this is local government, state government, federal government, however you want to look at it. This is the mentality. This guy is is threatening our power. And so we're going to do something to make him go away. And when they filed the lawsuit, when I first read it, it actually asked for me to pay their legal cost. Now, let's be real. I'm already paying your legal cost. I'm a taxpayer in this town. But they will actually put that in there. Now, that's not even legal. They cannot collect legal costs from me on an open records case. They just put that in there as a bullying, con uh, bullying tactic. They were hoping that they would sue me and that I would just go away. And probably 99% of the people, if they had been in my position, would have gone away. Because who has the resources to fight a lawsuit against the city over some documents? Right. Most people don't. Uh, you know, if you're a newspaper, that's one thing. You've got a legal staff and you've got some resources or a TV station, but you know, your average Joe doesn't. And I'm sure that's why they sued me. Fortunately, having worked for the 10th Amendment Center now for eight years, I've got a lot of contacts. Um, I utilize some of those contacts with the ACLU and they connected me with the folks here in Kentucky. And long story short, they agreed to represent me. So the ACLU of Kentucky is handling the, the legal aspect of all of this, which is, you know, like I said, I couldn't do it by myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been uh, a, a quite a godsend. And they've been absolutely fantastic. You know, you can say what you want about the ACLU. They're really bad on some things, but on surveillance and open records and that kind of thing, they're really, really good. And they've been really, really helpful. Yeah. So, uh, so back to the story in June, we had, uh, our initial hearing and the judge ruled in my favor. He said that again, agreed with the attorney general that the exceptions that they're trying to use don't work. 
that this idea that it's officer safety is absurd. And he told him to turn over the records. Well, again, they decided they were not going to do that. Uh, there was actually, first they went back to that judge, asked for a reconsideration. So we had another hearing, went through the whole thing again. The judge said the same thing. And so now we just got notice uh, last week that they're going to appeal to the Kentucky State Court of Appeals. So the, uh, the lawsuit saga will continue to the next level. So, you know, I don't know what in the world they're hiding, but it must be good. <laughs> because because they're uh, they're bound and determined not to let me find out what these cameras are or what uh, the, the parameters of their use are. So what? So if this does, hopefully it does go through, and you get. I guess the the intent here is to get fully access to what these cameras are collecting, get the unred, unredacted documents, right? So what? I mean, what do you have a guess as to what they they might be hiding? Or uh, I'm not going to speculate. Yeah. Okay. Fair yeah, enough. Fair I'm, enough. I'm not going to speculate at the, at this point. Uh, just just for the because I'm in the middle of a legal. Yeah, for case, the good of it. Understandable. I understandable. I don't, don't want to get into that. But um, you know, I, well, I, I will speculate a little bit. I'll speculate to the degree that the police department is kind of a, have tipped their hand a bit. I think some of the cameras probably have something to do with undercover surveillance because they've talked about informants and police officers working undercover. So I would assume maybe some of these are body worn, uh, maybe for, uh, maybe like for doing a drug deal or something. Mm -hmm. That's my guess, but we really don't know. Yeah. I mean, well, you were, you were saying some of them, the initial ones you saw were like by a skate park, you know, that kind of fits. And and I want to make, make sure that everybody's clear. The skateboard cameras are completely separate issue. Okay. Uh, I know quite a bit about the skateboard park issue and that's, you know, they're, they're dumb in and of themselves. Um, and here's the kind of the bottom line of where we're going. It's, I'm not just trying to get documents for the sake of getting documents. What we're really trying to do is we want to establish oversight, transparency and accountability when it comes to surveillance. And as a first step, we think that every surveillance technology that is purchased by any government agency should be after a public hearing before they get it. So in other words, the police department should be required to say, okay, I want to get a license plate reader. If they're going to do that, then they should be able to tell us before they get it, how they're going to use it, how they're going to make sure our privacy is protected, how they're going to store the data, who they're going to share the data with. All of those parameters need to be created and set in place before they get this kind of technology so that the community can weigh in and say, you know what? We don't want license plate readers in this town. Mm -hmm. And so that's the ordinance that we're actually pushing for. So this is the real bulk of our activism. The lawsuit is, is kind of in a way it's peripheral, but since the city's kind of thrown this in my lap, then I'm using it to my advantage to, to get this issue out. And it really has helped. It really has started to create a discussion in this city, I think, about surveillance. This discussion that we're having now about these 29 surveillance cameras, we should have had it before they ever got them. And I have a suspicion that they don't really have any parameters around how they use these because I know for a fact that when they put the cameras up in the park, they didn't have any parameters. They just kind of put them up and then it's fly by the seat of your pants. So I actually have video footage from those cameras that they gave me when I did an open records request, which is kind of creepy if your kid hangs out in that park that anybody could go and go to the city and get footage of your kid. You know, and yeah. there's all kinds of stalkery kind of scenarios well, that, that you can play out with that. That brings up a really good point. And you're talking about trans- transparency being extremely important. I agree with you. But when we talk about police body cameras, a lot of people, libertarians, 
Um, progressives probably agree on this. When we talk about police body cameras, so many people are quick to say, yeah, every police officer should wear a body camera. Well, I mean, if you think about that for a minute, do you really want that? Do you want your traffic stop when the police pull you over? Do you want that recorded on a body camera that could potentially be pulled at an open records request and then your privacy is violated? Um, I, I don't know what the answers are there, but I think there's definitely some serious concerns with that. What, what are your opinions on, on, on that? Well, um, my, my big thing with surveillance in general, and it's become so pervasive and it's become so intrusive. And, you, you know, we started to get an idea of just how pervasive it is uh, after Edward Snowden leaked all of those documents. And we started to realize, oh, my gosh, the NSA is collecting, you know, pretty much all of our all of our electronic chatter. They're collecting it and storing it. And it doesn't just stop there at the NSA level. A lot of the federal surveillance state is actually run in effect by state and local police. So they're getting this technology, drones, license plate readers, stingray devices that can track the location of a phone and even uh, access data that's on the phone. Mm -hmm. All of these things, these police departments are getting them. They enter into information sharing agreements with the federal government. And a lot of this stuff is getting dumped into giant databases. So for instance, we know for a fact that the DEA is running an, a license plate database where they're getting license plate information collected from all over the country, dumping it into this giant database so they can actually pull up a license plate and track, okay, it's been here and it's been here and it's been here. And when you start to think about just how intrusive knowing where you're going, how much you can learn about somebody by just by where they go. It's extremely, extremely invasive. So my position on surveillance is that a lot of it, I don't think police should have at all. Given that in the political dynamics we have today, that police departments are going to get their hands on some of this stuff. If they do, there should be warrant requirements and there should be very careful parameters around how data is stored and shared. In other words, if my local cop is getting my license plate on a license plate reader, that data should be destroyed after it's used and it should not be shared with the federal government. Mm -hmm. So that's really kind of the, the baseline first step. And the problem is, is that there's so many people out there that just don't care. They think, well, it doesn't matter. Who cares if the DEA has my license plate? Well, you know what? When you go to the grow shop and buy some grow lights and some cop decides, oh, you're growing weed and the cops come in with guns a-blazing to raid your house and you're just growing tomatoes, it becomes a problem. And that's a true story. That's actually happened. So, it's happened multiple times. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, people just don't understand how intrusive all of this stuff is and, and what an impact it can have. You get the, oh, well, I don't have anything to hide, so I've got nothing to fear. You know, I hear that every single time I talk about surveillance. And, and uh, you know, it's one of those dumb things that nobody really believes. I mean, if you really believe that, you wouldn't put curtains on your window. You wouldn't lock your door. Uh, you know, you you would send me your web browsing history and let me post it on the internet. I've actually asked that of people before. You know, I don't have anything to hide. Okay, send me all of your web browsing history and I'll post it on my website. Yeah. Nobody's well, taking every, me up on that yet. Everyone's, it's not even like people say I have nothing to hide. Well, I mean, you want things that you're doing in your life to be in the proper context. You wouldn't just give all your phone conversations to someone and say, yeah, you know, it's just take take these phone conversations and take out different snippets and i mean you could make someone say anything you want them to really so it's it's just ridiculous that's just such a weak defense for people to think that way it's horrible and i tell people this too you know your idea of doing something bad and the government's idea of doing something bad are two different things when you say i'm not doing anything bad you mean you're not murdering anybody you know you're not embezzling from your boss 
and uh, you know, you're not beating your kids. When the government thinks about things you might be doing bad, it's pretty much anything that is a threat to their power. So if you're politically active at all, you are potentially a target because if you're doing something that undermines power, governments don't like it. And we have a long history of governments using things like surveillance against people that, you know, they disagree with their political activity, whether it be Black Lives Matter or Tea Partiers or anti-war activists or whatever. Um, and, and so you may well have something to hide and you just don't even realize it because you're not defining properly what the government considers bad things. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it's so important. I, I'm a member of the Libertarian Party. I know you've recently been considering becoming a member of, of the LP. I'm not sure where you stand on that. I'm not going to not gonna pressure you here. But I, you know, I, I say this to other libertarians that it, it's so important for us, and you kind of it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's more important for libertarians to follow these rules that the FEC puts out there for campaign finance and all this stuff. Because if we slip up on just one little bit, that I mean, they're looking at us. I mean, the Republicans and Democrats do not want libertarians to have anything to do with politics. They don't want them on the ballot. So it is so important for us to do everything absolutely 100% to the T, which makes it much more difficult when you have Republicans and, and, and Democrats who really control the process and can kind of bend the rules and flex the rules to just, just a little bit. But or change them. Or change them, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, but that's, absolutely. That's the world we live in today. So... Uh, Michael, I just want to give you the opportunity to talk about, you know, some other things that that you're working on, um, some other things that you have going on at the uh, the Tenth Amendment Center. Well, we're kind of in. Uh we call it the slow season, which it isn't really slow, but it's time that we do a lot more uh, research and, and projects like that and trying to get things revved up for the next state legislative session, which they usually all start in January. So for us, our nose to the grindstone months are January, February, March, April. That's when we're really doing the most of our work as far as activism goes, working with state legislators, working on getting nullification bills uh, introduced and passed, trying to use state power to undermine uh, the the horrible federal overreach that's going on. So that's kind of where we are at the, at the 10th Amendment Center right now. Uh, if you are watching this and you're wondering what in the world is he talking about nullification, uh, basically this is just the, uh, the, the idea and the strategy of using state power to nullify or stop the enforcement of uh, federal actions. And it could be anything from guns to healthcare. Probably the most successful uh, aspect of this we, uh, we've seen is the legalization of marijuana. We now have 32 states that have legalized marijuana in some way, although the federal government still claims to maintain complete prohibition. What we find happens is when states ignore what the federal government is trying to do, the federal government can't do much about it because they lack the resources, the personnel, and the uh, political will to really follow through on what they want to do. So when you have 32 states that have effectively legalized marijuana in some form or another, there's no way that the DEA can do anything about that. The, the genie's out of the bottle. So we try to take this marijuana strategy and apply it to anything the federal government is doing and work to get states to not enforce federal gun laws, to not implement Obamacare, to stop enforcing EPA mandates, to uh, do all of these or stop doing all of these things the federal government wants them to do. So uh, it's, it's a great strategy. It's proven. And if you're interested in learning more about that, check out 10thamendmentcenter.com. 
and uh, you can you can see what we're doing. You can see all the different issues we're involved in. Uh, we also do a lot of constitutional uh, education. I know a lot of libertarians are like, oh, constitution, and they start quoting Spooner at me, and uh, I get it, but I think given the political dynamics, the world we live in, like I said earlier, the constitution is uh, ostensibly the, the law of the land, and it does provide a tool for decentralization. And as I said before, I believe that centralized power is the greatest threat to liberty. I don't like states. Obviously, I don't like local governments either. I think all governments suck. But I think it's worse when you have one big government doing everything and nothing below it. At least when you have states and local governments, there's some competition and you can worst case scenario, move jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So I think this decentralization concept is, is powerful. It's a powerful path to liberty. And one of the best ways to do that is simply use the legal system and the constitution as it exists. It gives us the power to push back against federal power. And that's what we're doing at the 10th Amendment Center every day. And it's, it's, it's been effective. I've really seen a, a huge jump in our success over the last couple of years. So I'm excited about it. So you would consider yourself a, an anarchist now? Yeah, I don't know if I can say that too loud. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm. I'm how, how long did it? I'm just curious. How long did it take you to become an anarchist after starting to uh, to work at the Tenth Amendment Center? You know, it's, it's it's hard for me to look back over the timeline and really pinpoint when that happened. It was kind of an evolution of of things, and 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 I'll be honest with you. Part of it has to do with my Christian faith. Um, mm. I started trying to reconcile my faith with my political ideals. And I, you know, and that was especially true with the war stuff. You know, on the one hand, you've got Jesus saying, love your enemies. And, and over here, I'm saying, bomb a rock. Well, you know, one of these things is not like the other. And, and so it was kind of a, it was kind of a, an evolution in thinking and studying. And, and so I really can't pinpoint and say this day is when, right. You know, it's kind of like one day I was, I was like, wait a minute, I'm an anarchist. <laughs> what happened? You know, um, and it, it's been it's been a few years. Um, it's been a few years now that I would say that I that I've been all in as far as that goes. I hate the term anarchist, too, because of the connotation. So I. Yeah. I, I wish I could figure out a better term for it. I, I don't know what it is. Sometimes I say voluntarist, but then people look at you cross eyed because that doesn't mean anything to them. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's kind of like the opposite. So you have the word anarchist, which just has this terrible label attached to it of people dressed all in black with masks on right. smashing windows of Starbucks. And then you have voluntarists to people. Are, what? what are you talking about? So it's, uh, yeah, we, we do need, I think we need a better word for sure. If we really do, do want to advance this cause, but yeah. I consider Sometimes myself, I, an, I was going to say, I, I consider myself an anarchist too, but I think like you, I, I don't really wear it on my sleeve. It's because I don't think it's the best way to persuade people. Yeah, I mean, I, I love to talk about it, and I have a, I have a website, godarchy.org, uh, particularly okay. if you're a Christian and you're interested in, uh, you know, kind of that intersection of faith and politics. I kind of explore uh, in a much more open way these, these idea of statelessness and, and particularly the, the idea of the non-aggression principle and uh, personal ownership, you know, and sometimes if I have time to talk to somebody instead of trying to put a label on it say, you know, I believe that we own ourselves and that we shouldn't initiate violence against other people. Uh, you know, that's really the core of, of, of what I believe. And then there's a lot of mm -hmm. ramifications that come out of that. And sometimes you can say that to people and they'll go, okay, yeah, I kind of get that. That makes sense. At least they don't think you're throwing rocks at, at trash cans or something. So. Right, right. All right, Michael. Well, thank you so much for giving us some time coming on the show. And uh, thank you for all the work that 
you guys are doing at the Tenth Amendment Center. It's uh, it's fantastic. So keep it up. I'm happy to do it. And I, I asked you earlier, you know, this is Felony Friday. I, I hope that the, the Lexington Police Department doesn't read this and decide to come swat my house or something. So I hope, don't give them any ideas. To my knowledge, I haven't committed any felonies. But then again, I did get slapped with a lawsuit. So, well, have, have you bought that. like tomatoes and gardening supplies recently? Because I really, be you know, you know, it's funny. You, and I don't want to, I know we're wrapping up, but you, you know, you talked about the whole, the mm-hmm. whole, um, Libertarian Party, how they have to really dot their I's and cross their T's. I've really kind of felt that too. You know, it's like I got to make sure that my taillights work, and it does yeah. make you a little bit paranoid. So, you know, uh, I mean, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty nerdy, straight geek anyway. But but you know, I would I would be very wary of of putting myself into any kind of situation that could be construed as shady at this point because you just never know. And you know, nobody's threatened me, and I've 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 not gotten any, you know anything that would really lead me to say, you know, they're watching me, but I don't know. There's just part of me thinks, yeah, they're watching me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it can't hurt to be a little bit paranoid. I yeah, think. Absolutely. Yeah. Not in the world we live in. It's healthy. Well, all right, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you guys for listening to today's episode with Michael Meharry of the 10th amendment center. I think we had a really good conversation. I think Michael, is doing some tremendous work at the 10th Amendment Center. Tremendous activism, very important. And, you know, overall, however you feel about the different ways to dismantle the government, if you're an anarchist, if you're a voluntarist, if you're a minarchist, I think we can all agree. We can all agree that decentralized government, giving more power to the states and less power to the federal government, generally is going to be a good thing. Of course, there could be some atrocities the states could do themselves, but if that were to occur, if that were to occur, then we can deal with it at that time. Probably easier to deal with a rogue state doing some abhorrent things than to deal with a federal government uh, with the power of the military behind it doing some abhorrent things. So, Lots of things to think about. Great conversation. I will link to all the uh, different web pages at the Tenth Amendment Center and uh, Michael's different uh, websites, godarchy.com. I'll link to his books all on the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com slash FF135. Be sure to check those out. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this conversation. I just want to remind you, if you enjoy this show, if you enjoy what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty, if you are happy that we are starting a fourth show that is going to be interviewing libertarian candidates. Please consider supporting us. Please consider becoming a patron, a Patreon, by going to patreon.com slash lines of liberty for joining as little as $5 a month. You get access to all of our bonus content. We have different levels all the way up to 10, 15, 25, all the way up to 100. Uh, you can join You can join all the way up to $100 a month where literally you get access to advertising on this podcast for the best deal in libertarian podcasting. I guarantee you that. But you also get merchandise and all the other good stuff. We have t-shirts. You can check out all of our t-shirts at lionsofliberty.store. Please consider supporting us, helping us out, helping us to grow this show. We grow this show. We don't do it for ourselves. We do it for the message of liberty. We do it to spread this message, to educate people, to wake people up. So if you want to help wake people up, please support our show. Thank you 
for those of us that do support our show that helped us uh, go to Porkfest and the Libertarian National Convention and many things in the future that we are eyeing up. So that's all I got. That's all I got at this time. I thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.